One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to NewsHour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-Jones and this week we're looking at North Korea and to explain why I have producers Elizabeth Davis and Piers Lynch. So, which one wants to go first? Why? Elizabeth Davies will go first. Oh, really? Thank you. Um, no, I think it's a, it's a topic that we have talked about doing for quite a while. I think uh, North Korea is never far from the headlines. Um, but it seemed like a particularly good week to look at it because it seems that tensions are getting particularly high. And one of the things that makes North Korea so interesting in a way is that we know so little about it. And so we wanted to make a bit of an attempt to know a bit more about it. So, Piers, there are two things, it seems to me, with North Korea. There's the geopolitics that we do quite a lot on. And then there's just this amazing internal situation. What on earth goes on? Yeah, there's nuclear North Korea and, you know, the slightly cartoonish uh, image that we have of these uh, sort of comedy rulers with their fingers on, uh, you know, the buttons of these vast arsenals. And then what you so often forget is that there are over 20 million people living in a brutally repressive, secretive society where to step out of line endangers your life, endangers your family's life. And as we'll hear in a minute, you know, people will go to extraordinary lengths to find uh, just the basic freedom and life and opportunity, um, you know, that the rest of us uh, squander on a daily basis. That's right. I was reading, in, in, in just preparing for the programme, there was a mother who told her daughter, who was four, so this is like the beginning of, you know danger time for start talking she said that even the mice inform on us don't say anything even if the mice hear it we're in trouble yeah uh, incredible i mean my mother told me uh, your best defense is too fast legs to carry you home so the uh, <laughs> you know the, these uh, m- mother's mother's words of advice but yeah an amazing story an amazing woman and uh yeah, well worth. So we're actually hearing from the person who that was said to. Yeah, that was in, yeah, the, in the program. Yeah, yeah. Yongmi Park. Yongmi Park, yeah, incredible woman. Okay, thank you both very much, and we're going to kick off with just a sort of reminder of the international situation surrounding North Korea to put everything in context. First of all, and this is from BBC Seoul correspondent Steve Evans, who sent us a sort of audio essay on just what's going on in and around North Korea now. <laughs> The tone is defiant. The North Korean newsreader has become a familiar face, announcing the country's fourth nuclear test in January and then a rocket launch in February. In response, the United Nations Security Council, including the US and China, imposed tougher sanctions. The tension has been heightened still further by joint exercises between 17,000 US troops and 300,000 troops from South Korea. These are regular manoeuvres, but it always plays badly in Pyongyang. The image every year is of American troops on Korean soil. How you doing? My name is Sergeant Omar Thomas, Charlie Battery, 211, 3rd Section Chief. We're out here in Korea. I'm out here just enjoying the atmosphere, the cohesion between the Koreans and Americans. Let's rain some cold steel. The tension is particularly high this year because the South Korean media says the operation plan has changed. 
The current plan, the media says, quoting South Korean politicians, includes a scenario where special forces kill or capture Kim Jong-un, decapitating the regime, as it's put. There hasn't been true peace on this peninsula since the Korean War started nearly seven decades ago. But North and South are united by an overarching Korean patriotism. Not all South Koreans welcome the presence of American troops, but many do. And many fear what would happen if North Korea finally mastered the technology to make nuclear bombs small enough for rockets to carry them. And that was Steve Evans. And let me now introduce our panel today from Beijing. We have Dr. Zhao Tong from the Carnegie Tsinghua Centre for Global Policy. Welcome to you, Doctor. We've also got Jean Lee, who's a former Associated Press correspondent in Seoul. She's actually speaking from Seoul. And uh, very relevantly for this discussion, she set up the AP Bureau in Pyongyang, and that was the first Western news office in North Korea. We also have John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea, He lived in Pyongyang from 2006 to 2008. And in the second half of the programme, let me just say we will be joined by Robert Colucci, who was the chief US negotiator at one stage over North Korea. But now let's hear from Yongmi Park. Now, many of those who get out of North Korea tend to keep a low profile, afraid perhaps of being identified and targeted in some way. They avoid publicity. Others take a different approach and try to explain to the world what's happening in North Korea. And there are now a number of books written by defectors, and one of them has been written by Yongmi Park. It's called In Order to Live, and she joins us now. So, Yongmi Park, thank you for being with us. And perhaps you could just start by telling us what happened to you when you were 13 years old. You escaped North Korea. Yes, I left in 2007 at the age of 13 and I crossed the frozen river to China. Yeah, that's when I escaped. So you escaped with your mother? Yes. Going across a a, a guarded border at risk of being shot? Yes. That's how I ended up in China, but that time I didn't know really. In Korea, we don't really have any other information resource like we don't have internet there's only one channel on tv there's no like magazine or other newspapers telling us what's really going on outside of the world so my mother and i had no idea and we just crossed the frozen river and we were just fell into human traffickers in china so what happened to you i mean you 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 almost became what you know a, a bit of property to be traded yeah, so when I was in North Korea, all I just wanted having something to eat. And at night, luckily I was living in the border area, so I could see the lights coming from China. And all I knew it was that if I go to China, there might be some food. And once we crossed the frozen river, that my mother was being raped in front of my eyes. And we were separated, and then we were sold to Chinese farmers separately. You were sold to two Chinese farmers separately? Yeah, so my mom was sold for, like, I think current money was $65. 
and my price was a little bit more than two hundred dollars. But this is a very common thing when North Korean defectors they escape to China. The Chinese government they don't accept us as refugees or they don't help us to go to South Korea. Instead, what they are doing is catching us and send us back to North Korea. Despite no, they know that we will be punished or executed. So that's why North Korean defectors are extremely vulnerable, and some of Chinese people know that, and they are using this vulnerability. So, so uh, did you manage to yeah. meet up with your mother again? Or? Yes, my mother was sold for a farmer, and the broker who bought me, he didn't sell me. And of course, I was 13 years old. I couldn't bear the shame, and I was trying to care myself. But he offered that if I become his mistress, he would bring my mother and my father to me, and I became his mistress. And he did live up to his words, and he bought my mother and he brought my father from North Korea. Right, and 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 then you got to America eventually. How did you get to America? It's、uh, so I went to Mongolia from China. So I crossed the Gobi Desert. And then I went to South Korea. After five years living in South Korea, I came to America recently to here to study, actually. And you're speaking to us now from New York, and I think you're at Columbia University. Yes. yes. What an amazing outcome from from, <laughs> from the opportunities you had when you were a, a little girl. So, look, what I'm going to do. Uh, Yongmi Park, just allow、mm-hmm. everyone else to ask you questions because you, you you've had this amazing journey, but also <laughs> before you were thirteen, you experienced North Korea very directly. I mean, you you were you were living there and facing the difficulties that that comes、yes. with that. So so let, let let me just throw this open and ask everyone to put a question to you. I think I think John Everard, I can see him, but he's ready to go. Yongmi, have you ever wanted to go back? I think when I was in China. Uh, my father wanted to go back when he knew that he was going to die from colon cancer that he got from when he was in prison in North Korea. For me, I still want to go back, but that does not mean that I miss the regime or the system. I just didn't like live North Korea because I hated it. I just had to live. There is no way to survive. So I think it is part of me always that I want to go back home someday. Jean Lee, let me let me throw throw the floor open to you. I think that Yunmi's tale just shows us the survival skills that North Koreans need, whether they're inside or outside the country, is absolutely remarkable. I am curious for her. She left、uh, when she was 13 years old. What she's seeing right now in the news does this sound familiar? Is this something that she saw growing up as well? And when you say what's going on in the news, Jean Lee, you're talking about the sort of ramping up of tension with the states at the moment, and all the sort of international tension around North Korea. Exactly, because of course we tend to look at North Korea in a black and white way, but it's a big country, and people have such different experiences. So I'm always curious to know what somebody living at the border,、um, how they see this. One of the things that I was told that this period is technically the anti-American period, the first part of the year. So. This is a time when the North Koreans are subject to this kind of anti-American propaganda, and I'm curious if she, growing up,、uh, heard some of that propaganda as well. Young Mi Park. So I was growing up in Haesan, which is really like northern part of North Korea, and later after my father imprisoned for doing the black market 
a vendor business. He sent to prison, and I had to move to Gowon, which is middle of North Korea. And I also had time to visit Pyongyang. So I saw many like uh, different parts of North Korea and experienced it. I did go to school for several years. All I knew was only a few countries in the world. And I never heard about internet. All I knew was, like, we so-called American bastards, right? Mm-hmm. And at school, what I learned is that, like, the math problem, they are saying, you know, there are two American bastards, and your comrade killed two more American bastards. Then how many American bastards did you kill totally? Well, hang on, and that, that that's, was, that's, like, that's how you do your math? Yes, that's how I do math. In every way, trying to brainwash us. And I really thought like American bastards having like a big nose and blue eyes and they are monsters. Everyday life was like brainwashing for sure. Brainwashing. Uh, do, do, go on, Jean Lee. Yep. I'm very curious to know what she thought of South Koreans during this period of time. And did she know the, the word for South Korea, Hanguk? I didn't know the word for Hanguk, actually. I knew Namjoseon, which uh, our ancient name. So I just called her like a South Joseon. I never knew South Korea was a free country. I thought it was colonized by Americans, saying American soldiers are raping children there and killing people. Most disgusting, horror place on earth. So it was really, it took time for me to understand that Hanguk and Namjoseon were the same thing. Dr. Zhao, let me uh, uh, give you the opportunity to ask a question. Thank you, Yangmi. Um, I feel uh, very sorry about your story. Uh-huh. Given the political propaganda by the North Korean government, how effective do you think that propaganda uh, still is today? Uh, how much of the North Korean general public uh, still believes in uh, what they are taught by the government? I was uh, just a normal, average person who is in the country, not in the elite class. So I think I only can speak for that kind of class people. I think when I was in North Korea, I remember the one turning point in my life when I saw the movie Titanic. I just never seen anything like that in my life because there's no love stories in North Korea. Hang on, I hang on, hang on. Heard... Just, just to explain, you, you saw the film Titanic? Yes. And that, uh, and that was a turning point in your life? Yeah, because uh, I never knew people can possibly make a movie out of such a shameful story. Love is something shameful thing in North Korea. We don't talk about it. There's no songs about it. There's no movies, no novels. And I just couldn't believe it when I watched the Titanic that why would somebody can make a movie out of such a shameful story? Have they executed for that? And why a person is dying for the love, not the regime? And that was like a revolution to me. But I still really didn't know what freedom really was. But that movie definitely showed me the taste of freedom. And many people, like who growing up in North Korea after uh, Soviet Union collapsed, they do have this access to the outside information. And we do know that uh, Americans are living richer than us. But it's really, I think like if you know the Double Think, 1984, George Orwell talks about Double Think, right? Dying people on the street in your country but you still firmly believe that you are living in the best country on earth. And I, when I read the Georgia Orwell's book 1984 after I escaped, they really explained to me everything, what was happening to my psychology. 
So you started with Titanic and you ended up with George Orwell. That's quite a, right. that's quite a journey. OK, I'm going to open this up into some different topics in a moment, but I just have one question myself, if I can, mm-hmm. before we do that, Yongmi, which is this. Many Westerners saw the TV pictures when Kim Jong-il died and saw so many North Koreans weeping and wailing in the streets and couldn't understand what was going on. Was this fake? Was it real? Was it genuine? What, what were those people feeling? Can you explain it to us? Uh, I remember that day I was in South Korea and I was seeing the news and I just couldn't believe it. I went to my mom and my mom couldn't believe it too. She was telling me, she was living in South Korea and she was telling me that, how come God dies? How come is this possible? And in North Korea, we don't believe that Kims are dying. So Kim Il-sung died, definitely. But we do believe his spirit is with us all the time, like Jesus. He died, but his spirit lives with us all the time, that they can read our minds. They are like God's figure in North Korea. Like, I don't know, have you seen the movie Truman Show? The Truman Show, yes. Yes. The Truman Show is a sort of a man brought up in a fake world, which was its own little sort of uh, little encased world of its own, yeah. So I just described North Korea. That's what it feels like to be in North Korea. Yongmi Park, thank you very much for that very helpful start for our discussion on North Korea and your remarkable experience. And good luck in New York at university. And I just want to now just broaden this out to, to ask some of the questions of our expert panel about the internal political situation in North Korea, because we, we're going to talk about the geopolitics in a bit. But there, there are things going on in North Korea which, which are difficult for you know, non-experts to understand. So, Jean Lee, can you kick us off on this contest between the Workers' Party leadership and the military leadership? Well, the North Koreans are very aware that bringing the Kim family into that leadership into a third generation is a challenge, right? They are so far removed at this point from from Kim Il-sung. And I can say that I do believe that the, the North Korean people feel very strongly that he is their eternal president. And one of the things that they've done, which is very interesting, is to try to draw on some of that legacy, some of Kim Il-sung's legacy in the making of Kim Jong-un. So really trying to position him as the successor to his grandfather and his father. And one of the ways is to bring the party back in control. Now, as you probably know, his father, Kim Jong-il, really brought the military in uh, into power during his reign. Why would the father have brought the military back into power? So Kim Il-sung was really associated with establishing the party and also establishing himself as a leader for the people. Kim Jong-il established himself as a person who was really in charge of the military. Now, what they're trying to do with Kim Jong-un is have him be the successor to both those legacies, but really drawing on the similarity that he shares with his grandfather, not only physically, um, both in terms of personality and physically. So what they're trying to do is to combine those two legacies by having him serve as the head of the party and bringing the military into the party fold. After so many years in power, the military top brass is not happy about this. Yes, I mean, I can see that because, uh, John Everard, since Kim Jong-un took over, half of the 200 top officers in the military have, have either 
been sacked or killed, is that right? That's right, and this would never have happened under his father. I I think the big difference is that, whereas we go back two generations, Kim Il-sung ran North Korea as a dictatorship, of course, but as essentially a civilian state, with the party very much in charge and the military under control of the party. When he died, it wasn't at all clear that Kim Jong-il was going to succeed him. There were other candidates, it's easy to forget this. And the reason that the military achieved prominence under Kim Jong-il was that he entered a devil's bargain with them, that they supported him in exchange for preeminence in national politics for the duration, effectively. What we're seeing now is a rebalancing of the political system back to the way that Kim Il-sung used to run it. And the military clearly are not happy. Not only do they lose power, they lose a lot of money. It's important to remember that, for example, a lot of the more lucrative mines along the North Korean-Chinese border are owned and run by the military. And getting yourself a big house and a smart car in Pyongyang is a great deal easier if you've got uh, shoulder badges. Taking on the military in any political system system, well, developing world political systems particularly maybe, a tricky thing to do because they can, they can launch coups. So is... is, is they've tried this. I mean, you're talking theoretically. There have been attempted coups against the North Korean regime. Uh, all of them have failed and those involved have been uh, disposed of in rather unpleasant ways. But yes, this happens. And, and, and Jean Lee, can you talk to us about this party congress? Because as, as I understand it, I mean, this must be part of the whole story that's going on here. The, the last party congress was in 1980. And now we've got one coming up in May. So that's a huge gap of time. What's that all about? North Korea is currently in what they're calling a 70-day loyalty campaign, uh, the 70-day countdown to this big Congress. As you mentioned, it's been 36 years. So this kind of Congress was not held during Kim Jong-il's rule. Now, one thing I want to point out is that Kim Jong-il was groomed or was preparing to succeed his father for 30 years. Kim Jong-un did not have that much time. So he needs to really establish his leadership and his power. And the way that he wants to do that is with this big party Congress. So a lot of the provocations that we're seeing are part of a larger plan leading up to this party Congress. He wants to go in it uh, into the Congress on a high and legitimizing his power. Right. And Dr. Zhao Tung, the the point about uh, this is that he's quite a young man. I mean, if if he consolidates his power in a way that he's obviously uh, trying to do, he could be there for decades and decades. Yes, I think I think every uh, indicator uh, shows that he's in firm control. And even though we uh, saw this uh, purging of senior uh, political and military uh, leadership, I don't think that necessarily means the regime is unstable. I think if we uh, look at the Chinese political system 50 years ago, which I think uh, was in a very similar situation as today's uh, North Korean political system. And we know that uh, since the late 1950s, uh, there was huge internal turmoil in Chinese political system. Many senior uh, leaderships uh, were purged, and there was serious political struggle. Even that, the Chinese political system uh, survived uh, under those circumstances for more than 20 years. So I don't think the purge means the North Korean leadership uh, is unstable. So just when you say that, 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 that North Korea today is like China was 50 years ago, so this is the early Mao years you're thinking of, is it? Yes, starting from the uh, late 1950s all the way to the late 1970s. The, the, the two uh, countries shared very similar political system, very similar uh, political ideology. They faced 
the same external security environment, uh, their internal uh, political uh, uh, struggle also uh, bears a lot of resemblance. Well, let's let's work out what lessons you draw from that, because China had what Deng Xiaoping and this amazing reform that happened, but you can't see that in North Korea, can you, or can you? But the Deng Xiaoping reform only happened uh, after uh, President Nixon decided to fly all the way to Beijing and shake hands with Zhou Enlai. That uh, completely changed Chinese security uh, threat perception. And also uh, the gradualistic improvement of uh, relationship with the Soviets also uh, contributed to Chinese perception about the outside world. And I don't think without this huge change of security threat perception, even a reformist leader like Deng Xiaoping could single-handedly change the political system, change the mindset of a country. Okay, I think that's very helpful. uh, First half, talking about the internal politics and what's going on uh, with the defector's life and also what's going on in the politics of North Korea. So uh, just to remind you, if you want to get in touch with us, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet us at bbcnhextra, at bbcnhextra. You can get the podcast. And the way to do that, just put BBC NewsHour Extra into your podcast app or your search engine, and then you can get one edition downloaded each week. You're listening to NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones, and this week we're looking at North Korea. And in Beijing, we have Dr Zhao Tong. We've got Jean Lee, Associated Press's first bureau chief in Pyongyang. We've got John Everard, former UK ambassador to North Korea. And joining us for this half of the programme, we have Robert Gallucci, who was the chief US negotiator in what some would say was the last big concerted negotiation with North Korea, and that was back in the 90s. Now then, Robert Gallucci, welcome. Thank you very much. I wonder if you can help us by just running through some of the uh, history of the international community's efforts to deal with North Korea, and basically starting off in 1986. And that was when U.S. intelligence thought there was uh, plutonium production, right? In the late 80s, the U.S. was focusing on the North Korean nuclear energy program. It was described as an energy program, but because of the technical character of it, it was pretty easy for the United States to see that it was, while it had energy research components to it, it was a nuclear weapons program, a small one, but a a small and growing nuclear weapons program. And then it it moved on, uh, as did the North Koreans, with an effort to get a kind of peaceful chapeau over it. They joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but they really didn't accept safeguards. Then as we moved into the 90s, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the protector, uh, one of the protectors of of the DPRK of North Korea, and a, a whole political context changing for North Korea very rapidly as uh, China comes to a uh, relationship with South Korea, their arch enemy. So North Korea early in the 90s uh, launches a for it a charm offensive of, of a kind diplomatically approaches the United States about improving relations. Right. And and at that time, that's when you got involved. And a deal was signed in 1994 between the United States and North Korea. And actually, uh, listen carefully for a name check here, Robert Colucci, because it was announced by President Clinton in October 94. Before I take your questions, I'd like to say just a word about the framework with North Korea that Ambassador Colucci signed this morning. This is a good deal for the United States. North Korea will freeze and then dismantle its nuclear program. 
South Korea and our other allies will be better protected. The entire world will be safer as we slow the spread of nuclear weapons. Well, there we go. Uh, so dismantle the program, but that never happened, did it? Well, actually it did. A word that had crept into our language in the United States was irreversible, and I never quite understood how one does anything that's irreversible when you talk about constructing facilities. Under the agreement, the uh, North Korean facilities, the reactor was shut down, a couple of the buildings were were taken apart, and the actual dismantlement of the program was to be on a schedule that included things that we got and things that the North got. Quite a lot of the North Korean plutonium production uh, program was dismantled and stopped in its tracks and stayed stopped for about a decade. The important fill-up on all this is that late in the 90s, and I actually don't know exactly when, the North Koreans began not to put too fine a point on it, cheating with Pakistan and accepting from Pakistan gas centrifuge, uranium enrichment technology. So first of all, plutonium program, then a uranium program. And just to, to bring us right up to date, what nuclear capability does North Korea have now? Our best guess is that the North Koreans probably have somewhere between five and ten nuclear weapons, fabricated weapons, explosive devices. They have a plutonium production capability that they have always had, had for 25 years, but they have added a uranium enrichment program, which will give them, and we estimate is giving them, highly enriched uranium, another form of fissile material with which to build nuclear weapons. So they could say by the end of this decade, they could be in the range of 15 or 20 nuclear weapons quite plausibly. So let me do what we did in the first half. Uh, we've got Dr. Zhao Tong, Jean Lee and John Everard who can all put questions to you because you've got amazing experience of, of dealing with this face-to-face face and actually getting something done in the 90s, even though, as we've heard, things have gone in a different direction since then. So why don't we start with Dr. Zhao, first of all? I was wondering, uh, given your uh, significant uh, dealing with the North Koreans and given our frustrated experience of uh, making deals with them, do you still have faith in a diplomatic engagement approach with them? And if so, how should we carry out uh, having a serious talk uh, under such tough circumstances? A moment ago, Dr. Zhao, I, I did say I used the word cheat to describe what the North Koreans had done. I believe, I'm guessing here, and I've talked to North Koreans since, that they believe they were acting consistent with the agreement or they think it's arguable. They were, uh, nobody I know outside of North Korea thinks that's true. But that is a key question in trying to answer your question about whether there is a basis for the resumption of serious negotiations. Is there any reason if a deal is struck again, that the other parties would have faith that the DPRK would stick to the deal. The short answer to that is I have no way of knowing. I do have the following two thoughts, though. One is that another deal will have to be a broad one, a political settlement of some kind, not one narrowly focused just on the nuclear issue. It will have to include the nuclear issue. It'll have to include human rights. And I suspect it'll have to include something that will look like a treaty of peace rather than the current armistice to end the Korean War of so many decades ago. And the second point here is there are no other good alternatives that I see in terms of policy. One can bend one's knee and pray that this regime will pass peacefully from the planet, but that does not strike me as a policy. John Everard, you've been involved more recently in negotiations. It's very, it must be interesting for you hearing Robert Gallucci. What do you, what do you make of it? 
Bob sets out very, very clearly how we got to where we are. Uh, just as an add-on, of course, 2012, we had the famous leap year deal. Bob pointed out that the agreed framework held more or less, give or take, for around a decade. The leap year deal, of course, fell apart within two or three weeks. Just, just talk us through that. The leap year deal was the great attempt, again, to nail the North Koreans down in an agreement focused on their nuclear programmes. Essentially, it was a trade-off, again, for the North Koreans freezing their nuclear programmes for certain amounts of aid. Within a couple of weeks of the deal, the North Koreans broke its terms by launching a missile. So, I mean, Gene Lee, there we've got two examples, two diplomats battling away, reaching agreements and uh, both basically dishonoured. I'm very curious to, you know, not too long after the the breakdown of the Leap Day deal, we did see North Korea take a a shift in um, enshrining the pursuit of nuclear weapons in its constitution. So I'm very curious what Ambassador Gallucci thinks about how this changes the negotiations with the North Koreans. From my perspective, it's not just with the DPRK, but with many negotiating partners. When someone says it's absolutely impossible, what they mean is it's going to cost an awful lot. And the proposition that we started the negotiations with with North Korea 25 years ago was that what we wanted the North Koreans to do was impossible. And we, in fact, achieved that in the negotiation. And I think that uh, they can enshrine it in their constitution. They can say it as part of our DNA, but at the end of the day, it is a very small nuclear program relative to other programs, and it is, forgive me, technically easy to reverse, and certainly profoundly in the interest of the DPRK going forward as a nation to rejoin the international community, which I do not believe they will be able to do if they stick to their nuclear weapons program. Okay, so let's try and do this uh, country by country and see what the various powers involved in trying to negotiate with North Korea or deal with North Korea are trying to achieve. Let's start with uh, South Korea, Gene Lee. When you look at the South Koreans, where do they want to get to with North Korea? Oh, that's so difficult because it goes back and forth. You know, I was just looking at some of the uh, the statements that both the North Korean leader and the South Korean leader made in January, very hopeful signs that they wanted to try to improve the relationship But as we've seen, a deterioration of that relationship to probably one of the lowest points in years. I think that President Park has called eventual reunification a bonanza, thinking that eventually trying to find some way to reconcile or bring North Korea into the South Korean fold is an eventuality for South Korea. That is the final goal. Whether that's the final goal or an eventuality, I think that uh, South Korea has to prepare for and consider the possibility that that could happen. Okay. Dr. Xiaotong, we've got a very interesting situation with China, where the Chinese have been very supportive of North Korea over the years, and now it seems that they're imposing some of these UN sanctions on Chinese ships. So that suggests quite a significant shift. Where is China trying to get to? Yes, we do see China agreeing to tougher sanctions against North Korea. I think that was aimed at sending a strong signal to North Korea when it violated UN Security Council resolutions. And China had a firm stance on nuclear non-proliferation. With that said, I think the start point of Chinese policy on North Korea is that China understands that North Korea really feels threatened. And China fears two scenarios on the Korean Peninsula. One is more military and economic pressure might lead to a regime collapse. Certainly people talk about, you know, all the refugee problems uh, leading from a regime collapse. But I think China is more concerned about the process of collapse 
itself, because no one can be certain how the collapse will take place, how to secure the nuclear materials, the nuclear weapons, how to make sure a rogue faction of the military did not retaliate with their nuclear forces against South Korea, etc., etc. So that's very hard to deal with, and we don't think anyone, including the United States. Has a good plan for every possible scenario, and most importantly, I think China does not see the current approach of sanctions and military pressure serves a long-term strategy. Do we really have an exit strategy for North Korea? I think, from Chinese perspective, the only peaceful solution in the long term is still to try to encourage North Korea to liberalize its economic system and gradually. Come back into the international system as a normal member. I see. So, 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 what you're saying is that the Chinese idea is avoid collapse, refugees. What do you do with the nuclear weapons, so on? Avoid collapse and just gradual change to normalize North Korea. That's the only feasible long-term strategy from the Chinese perspective.、Mm-hmm. John Everard is a representative of the British,、uh, the British system, British state for many years. I, I, I feel slightly out of order in asking you to represent the Russian point of view. But c- could you explain to us what the Russians are thinking because now, it's very interesting. There's a recent statement from the Russians saying recent North Korean statements about the possible preventative nuclear strikes could create a legal basis for the use of force. Now that's that's something, isn't it? That certainly is something. A very clear statement and a very strong one, and one that's not untypical of Russia. I mean, Russian foreign policy does have certain, shall we call them, idiosyncrasies. But、uh, when it comes to nuclear non-proliferation, Russia always has been absolutely solid, and I think that Moscow is aghast at what Pyongyang is doing. Whether in that statement they are effectively suggesting that others might want to send troops across the border, or whether it's just a general warning to Pyongyang, I don't think anybody really knows. Can I perhaps come back to the Chinese position? I think the big new element in the way that China approaches North Korea is the possibility of the terminal high-altitude defence system in South Korea, which China quite clearly regards as a serious threat to its own security. And China has worked out that, firstly, South Korea is not going to be bullied out of the system, and secondly, that the reason they are talking to the Americans about putting it in is that. South Korea feels it has to respond to North Korean military threats. China desperately wants this not to be deployed. So all of a sudden, China's interests and those of the United States in North Korea, for quite different reasons, have become parallel. And we've seen the results. China has started to implement sanctions,、uh, deflect North Korean ships from its ports, cut back on the export of coal. At the same time, the Chinese have made clear that they are not prepared to see a collapse. Right. So, Robert Gallucci, this this business of collapse is because I was unaware before reading up for this program that there's this word collapsist, you know, relating to people, particularly in the states, I think, who who talk about you know it'll collapse and that's going to be the end point of this. Can you just talk to us about that? Yeah, who thinks that? And and obviously the Chinese don't want it. What do they, people think in America think about it? This has been a topic that surfaces intermittently. For those who follow North, North Korea case, they will remember in the late nineties, the debate in Washington and Seoul was whether there would be a soft landing or a hard landing, and what they were talking about was how 
the DPRK would come apart. And even an outgoing director of the Central Intelligence Agency predicted that the government would collapse within a couple of years. The problem with his hard landing or soft landing is that the North Koreans don't plan on landing. They plan on continuing to fly. And they have, over decades, managed this country, as we all know, in a very special way. It is that totalitarian still doesn't quite capture what it is. Yeah. And it will keep going. And well, so I, it, yes, but just because it's, yes. it's tricky, that, isn't it? Because I can see what you're saying. People have gone wrong before, but that doesn't mean they'll be wrong in the future about collapse. That's certainly true. I'm, I'm doing what I think is important. Well, the first thing is, if that's your plan, it's not much of a policy. It could be what you hope for. But there's an awful lot of uh, resilience in that regime and in a country that has suffered incredibly. And by the way, Today, we are reading about the implications of sanctions for the population, the tuberculosis issue and and the humanitarian aid issue and the implication of sanctions. So there's going to be a lot of suffering. And in most cases, one would say, well, the regime would be put at risk. I'm not so sure. So am I right in saying none of you, with all your expertise, think a collapse is imminent? I think a collapse is possible. The trouble is that nobody knows when. You run the numbers of North Korea and they really don't look good, but the place just keeps staggering on. Gene Lee, can you just uh, give us some idea of... I've been, we've been talking about what everyone wants and what they predict in all of this. I guess we've heard it from Robert Gallucci. The North Koreans, from their point of view, is just hang on in there, right? So much of what they're doing right now is to ensure the continuation of their way of life and their political system. They are watching the world around them change so quickly, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, the changes happening in China, the advancement of South Korea's economy, uh, just shifting geopolitical changes in the region. They're terrified by that. So let's all now, thank you very much for that uh, geopolitics. We're, just before we go, I, I think it's fascinating the way North Korea is perceived in the world because it is treated as a joke by a lot of people. And obviously it's not a joke for people who are living there. It is a rather strange situation. But we can get some idea again now of what it's like inside North Korea from Suki Kim, who has an absolutely remarkable story. Because back in 2011, she managed to secure access to the North Korean elite as a teacher at an exclusive university in Pyongyang. She was actually there on false pretenses. Uh, She said she was there for missionary work, and this whole university is an extraordinary institution, but it's basically run by missionaries, Christian missionaries, and it it, it educates many people in the elite. But in fact, she was there not really as a missionary. She was trying to find out what was going on, the sort of journalistic mission. So this is what she told us about... So this is what she said to us. First of all, how did she get into North Korea? So I went in with an international group of evangelicals. This evangelical community has struck some sort of an unofficial deal with the North Korean regime to go in and basically fund everything. They're not allowed to proselytize, but, you know, obviously the real long-term goal is to convert. So basically the evangelical uh, community's money is funding the education of the future leaders of North Korea. I've been quoting that organization for a long time because I was, you know, working on a book on North Korea. So when I found this opportunity, I went in as one of those teachers. Um, there were about 30 teachers at the time in this locked compound and 270 young men. And they were absolutely the creme de la creme of North Korea. And how old were your students? They were uh, between the ages of 19 and 20. Okay. So you're talking to them day in, day out for six months. They've been told, what, not to engage with you on any topic other than learning English? 
Right. There was a strict rule of never asking questions about the outside world or talking about them. Everything was guarded. I mean, it's, it's high, high level surveillance at all times. The students were never allowed out. But you know what was fascinating was because I was their teacher living next door, basically. And, you know, feelings come out. So just before we hear about those little insights, uh, did you ever have one on one meetings? You're not allowed to be one-on-one with them. They all uh, go everywhere in body system, in pairs. And, you know, part of that reason for that is obviously, you know, what look like best friends or actually surveillance system. You know, they watch each other, but they also have these meetings once a week, all North Koreans, where they report on each other. So now tell us, when they let things slip, give us some examples. Well, I mean, it would be, you know, something so little as admitting that they listen to rock and roll, which North Koreans are not allowed to say that. The students just stopped talking instantly when that slip was made. Everyone stopped talking and they just looked down. And, you know, actually in the moments like that, one of us changed the topic because clearly fear was was very palpable. So I think it's a mistake to think of North Koreans as some sort of great leader of robots. What I noticed was absolute shift between forming these bonds and then they would retreat. For example, one time they changed the essay topic they assigned. They seemed really interested in exploring, you know, what they could write about. But suddenly all of them changed their topics to hailing their great leader, for example. So, you know, it was kind of a back and forth, which I thought was fascinating because actually the foreign relations with North Korea on an international level is pretty much like that. Anytime it looks like the country is opening up, it also then, you know, goes to the other extreme of isolating itself. Can you just uh, finally say a few words, because I know you feel very strongly about this, about the coverage that there is of North Korea in the mainstream media? Because obviously... To cover North Korea, people have to get visas and they have to go. And, you know, it's a negotiation, basically, between the state and the journalist, isn't it? Trying to get some stuff out. But you don't like that approach. Tell us why not. The absolute control is what makes North Korea unique of its own citizens, of its own place in the world. And it's pretty much the same in controlling the media, which is why we, you know, everybody always says we don't know anything about what's going on inside North Korea. What does that mean? That means absolute control. So it's not a country you can go in and interview people because if, when you do that, you have to do it under the whims of the North Korean regime. So if you're going to get a permission from the North Korean regime to cover North Korea, I don't think of that as journalism. I think of that as publicity. I think the only way to know what is going on in there is to cover it undercover. It's a very, very, very extreme case of control. And it's a place where journalism and also foreign policy have utterly failed. And that was Suki Kim. And the book, I should say, of uh, her experiences doing that remarkable thing is Without You, There Is No Us. Jean Lee, let me come to you. You opened a bureau in Pyongyang. You tried to do that difficult thing of reflecting what it's like and yet keeping your bureau open, I guess. So do you think she, she has a point? Well, you know, she was there for three months and I was there for three years. And I would certainly say that um, when you're there day in and day out, going across the country for three years, you do tend to have a lot of conversations with people. And 
For me, actually, I found that North Koreans were extremely curious about the outside world. They were constantly asking me to show them pictures of what uh, my apartment looked like. So it was very interesting because I found that one of the things I wanted to know is how do you live in North Korea? What are your daily lives like? And that was a very similar question they had about me as well. So certainly in my interactions with the North Koreans and the people I worked with, although there is certainly a fear of surveillance, we did certainly have enough time away from the monitoring to have very candid conversations. I absolutely think that it's important for journalists to try to get on the ground in whatever way that you can. I question whether trying to pretend to be an evangelical Christian gives you more freedom than going in as a journalist. I think they're both very difficult situations in a country that keeps foreigners apart um, from the locals. Well, yeah, OK. So, well, first of all, she said she was there six months. Uh, Sarah, I should say that. Rob, Robert Gallucci, let me bring you in here. I mean, first of all, just to reflect on the fact, it's actually an extraordinary situation that the, the North Korean elite are being educated by Christian missionaries who, who, who've got this, this uh, university. They're not allowed to talk about their faith, but somehow they're there doing this work. It's actually incredible, isn't it? I guess it's incredible, but I, I was taking away from the, the comments that were made that this is not a, a university, you used the word university, but mm-hmm. this is a setting in which they we're not exactly have free exchange and can talk about what life's like on the outside. That's explicitly excluded. And while I would like to think that somehow by some process of osmosis, some values are, are inculcated, some uh, I, minds are opened and they will remain open uh, for a period of time until these people have a position of influence. Boy, this is a long shot. This is what I think we call in American football a Hail Mary pass. I think the idea of opening up the North over time is something that begins to sound like a strategy and something, of course, the North in this regime I will resist. Yeah. John Everard, did you ever get to this university? Or whatever, you know, I take the it, point, it, this sort of institution. It was still being built while I was there. Uh-huh. So I, I saw the building site, but of course it wasn't quite ready. But could I come in? I'd like to endorse what, what, what Jean's just said. We have this idea in the West that the North Koreans are kind of brainwashed automatons. They're not. They're all fully formed individuals. As individuals, they are curious. They're often extremely intelligent. And when they feel they can talk to you safely, they will pump you dry of questions. They also, I found, know a great deal more than people imagine about the outside world. And they always want to know more, partly for their own curiosity, partly because the way the information exchange in North Korea works is that you will sit in with very tight groups of friends that you can trust implicitly and trade information. And if you can talk to a foreigner, that raises your status, so to speak, in that kind of group. And I think slow opening up in North Korea, yes, it's a wonderful idea. It would be a strategy. The problem is, as Bob has just alluded to, that the North Korean regime is not stupid. They realise the threat that an institution uh, that exposes uh, young and, and probably quite impressionable North Koreans to Western values would pose to the regime. They're not yeah, going to go along with it. Exactly. Opening up it threatens collapse, right? So It does, yes. So, so people in the system are going to be very nervous of that. Yes, that's right. And just before we close this, Dr Zhao, can we have a final thought from you? I want to make a point about the uh, domestic control in North Korea. I think um, the domestic control will only be tightened uh, if the regime feels greater external security threat. And also going back to a former point that uh, Suki Kim mentioned about uh, absolute control in North Korea, 
nothing is under absolute control when it comes to uh, such military tensions. Incidents can lead to skirmishes, which can then,、uh, you know, spiral out of control very quickly and escalate into much larger war and even lead to nuclear exchanges.、Uh, this happened during the Cold War. We are seeing the same thing in North Korea. So we really want to be clear that the real danger today is misperception and miscalculation on both sides. That can start from an incidental skirmish and lead to very large military conflicts. I'm very grateful to all of you for this discussion. We try to get beyond the cartoon headlines in this case and just、uh, try and do things in a little more detail. And I think you've very much helped us do that with North Korea. So thank you very much to Zhao Tong, to Jean Lee, to John Everard, and to Robert Gallucci. If you'd like to listen back to this, bbcworldservice.com/forward/slash/newshourextra. You can、uh, stream us there. You can also get the podcast. If you put News Hour Extra into your podcast provider, or just into Google or whatever, and on Twitter at BBC NH Extra, the email is newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. So from the panel, many thanks, and from Owen Bennett Jones here in London, goodbye.